Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom and State. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347 324 Five, 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 two. Good evening. You're listening to the Just of Freedom. It's still faith. And this is Rodney, your host for tonight. Tonight we will be interviewing Mr. Keith Bochamp of the Injustice Files. Are you there, Mr. Bochamp? Yes, I am. How are you, Rodney? Very good. Good evening. We're glad to have you on the show tonight. Uh, we Thank just want to just... I just want to welcome you to the Just the Freedom, and we'll just want to give our audience kind of a little background of of, of who you are, so you can just give us a little introduction so our audience get acquainted with you. Okay. Well, um, my name is Keith Beauchamp, of course, or Beauchamp, <laughs> the, the way you pronounced it, but I'm the executive producer and the host of the Injustice Files on Investigation Discovery. I'm also um, the indie filmmaker that was behind the reopening of the Emmett Till case in 2004. So um, I, I'm I'm here and and um, I'm just glad to be a part of your your um, show tonight. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to get some background for you. I know you mentioned you're you're involved with the Emmett Till, so give us a little background background on on your project, which you're involved with the uh, Emmett Till. Well, in 2004, I was involved with getting the Emmett Till case reopened. Of course, um, many of your listeners who know me may have heard this story before, but it was a case that I heard at the age of 10 um, when I was in my parents' study. Um, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I came across a Jet magazine, like many of us did, um, with the photograph of Emmett Till. And like many of us who saw that photograph for the first time, it shocked me tremendously, and I just needed to know what this picture was. And um, my parents came in and explained the story to me. But throughout my life, the name Emmett Till kept resurfacing. When I got into high school, I was interracially dating. And the first thing my parents would often tell me before I left the house at night was, Keith, don't let what happened to Emmett Till happen to you. So it became a, a somewhat of a boogeyman, boogeyman story, or should I say um, um, an educational tool to teach me about the racism that still works in society today. But it wasn't until my two weeks before my high school graduation when I had my, I would say, my real run-in with racism when I was assaulted by an undercover police officer for dancing with a white friend of mine. And that's what spurred me into motion to want to fight injustice. And I felt the only way possible that can happen if I became to uh, a part of the system in a sense. So I began to study criminal justice at Southern University of Baton Rouge in hopes of becoming a civil rights attorney. And then during my junior year 
of college, I was in, introduced to filmmaking by childhood friends who moved to New York City and started their own film production company. At a company meeting one evening, I, I was asked um, if there was a film that I would like to produce, what would that be? And, of course, the name of Emmett Till came to me, a story that I heard most of my life. And that's how I got started. I can honestly tell you that um, if it wasn't for the murder of Emmett Lewis Till, if it wasn't for me seeing that photograph at the age of 10, you would not be talking to a Keith Beauchamp filmmaker today. So I owe it all to Emmett Till and, of course, his family and his, and his late mother, the late Mamie Till Mobley. That's a very good intro and a good narrative of, of Emmett Till. Now, since since you've been involved with Emmett Till Project, uh, I guess that has catapulted you into um, your filmmaking career. Is, are these the only projects? What other projects have you had in well, filmmaking? Well, I've, I've had tons of projects, and thanks for asking me, because after the heels, coming off the heels of the Till investigation, which, in, which ended in 2006, the FBI launched their Civil Rights Cold Case Initiative, which was inspired by my work with Emmett Till and the reopening of the case. And the initiative opened with about 110 cases of civil rights murder cases from our past, um, 110 cases that we were looking at and reviewing to see if they warrant um, new investigations and, of course, if we could get any prosecutions, if there, that was possible, we would go after those remaining perpetrators. So from, from the launching of the Civil Rights Cold Case Initiative in 2006, that led me into a, a somewhat of a partnership with the FBI, helping them on civil rights murder cases that they had problems solving. Um, unfortunately, um, as we know, there was this, this dark cloud over law enforcement, even today, um, they felt that the need to have me involved because I was able to use my expertise and get people to open up and talk to me as a you know rather as a, a filmmaker rather than of course a, a person in law enforcement. So from the launching of the Civil Rights Code Case Initiative, I went on to produce a series called Murder in Black and White that was hosted by Reverend Al Sharpton, and that took place in 2007. Uh, for TV One Networks, where I was dealing with some of the cases that we were um, focused on under the Cold Case Initiative with the FBI. And that, that series led me to a series with the History Channel called Wanted Justice. And Wanted Justice led me to the series that I have, um, The Injustice Files for Investigation Discovery. So it's a, The Injustice Files for Investigation Discovery is an extension to my large body of work that I've been doing. I still with, deal with um, civil rights murder cases and, of course, injustices in general. So by giving the exposure to these particular injustices and the injustice file, how effective is the measure of the show in, in, in bringing forth convictions in, in of these uh, cold case files of different, of different sorts of injustices? Well, in terms of cold cases in general, the civil rights murder cases that I've been dealing with, of course, a lot of the cases that I've worked on bear a lot of fruit. Um, unfortunately, I'm not the one that's in charge of doing the prosecution and moving these cases forward. I, what I do is hand over my findings to the FBI, and then they go on and review my findings, and if it's helpful in leading them 
towards unrest uh, and so on, those decisions are then made by the Justice Department. So as of now, we are actually still hoping in a lot of cases that I've worked on that, that bear fruit that we will be able to get some prosecutions in the future. So it's an ongoing effort. Um, you know, this is an unconventional way that you would normally um, use in, in, in dealing with these cases, I have to say, because it's very rare that a filmmaker is able to work with the FBI side by side. And, um, of course, anything, anytime you're dealing with civil rights and you mention the FBI and the two, the two don't jail. And so it's a rare occasion that um, I was brought into because of my initial work with the Emmett Till murder case. And um, the Injustice Files itself just provides a bigger platform for me to continue the work. All right, this has brought you, has come a long way since you've been 10 years old to somewhere where you're at today and looking at uh, Emmett Till. Um, what yeah. do you think, uh, how is relations today, and wow. thinking back on the uh, Emmett Till, um, you draw any parallelism to pretty much today how society is versus then? Do you think we have a climate that is, you know, has gotten better, or do you think it's reverting back to a sense where we were before? That's a good question. I, I would have to say that, um, you know, it's interesting that I've been privy to dealing with a lot of these civil rights murder cases in my life. I have not stopped since the reopening of the case in 2004 or even before. Um, the Till film took me nine years to produce. But, um, right, of course, coming off the heels of the Till film, I continued on this path until now. I have been working nonstop. So I say this all to say that um, I'm very privy to the historical context of a lot of these cases. And, you know, unlike a layman on the street, I'm a student of history. Uh, many of us are students of history, but I deal with these, these topics day in and day out. So I see a lot of things that many may not understand that continues to happen today is what I'm saying. Um, yes. I could, I could sum this whole thing up, the question up by just saying, never in a million years have I, would I ever think that in my lifetime that I would actually see history repeat itself. And I yes. say that because, you know, there are so many things that we are speaking out and outraged about today, those same issues which are transgenerational that we have been dealing with since the 50s and beyond that. Nothing yes. is new with what we're dealing with today, with racial profiling, with, um, of course, the continuous even scale, uneven scales of Lady Justice. We have been here before. And um, yes. you know, now that we have the Michael Brown case in our midst, and you see all this protesting that is going on throughout the communities abroad, not just in Ferguson, of course, I would have to say that history is repeating itself. Are things better than the 60s? Yes, in many ways, but things are even a lot worse than now because we are losing a lot of the free liberty 
that we fought for back in the 60s. So, yes, I think, you know, go ahead. Yeah, I kind of agree with you, you know, and I think, you know, I think what happens a lot of times, you know, is, you know, with with progress comes sometimes, you know, setbacks where people become complacent and they think that things are pretty much as they are. And, you know, we get to a sense of we're in, in, entitled or we've got so many things going good for us that, you know, we become relaxed to a sense that says that we don't need to, we have to see how we see ourselves in the world that's kind of like, you know, more more complacent, you know. So we need to pretty much, you know, you know, we move forward. But I want to pretty much, uh, I know you talked about producing. I know most of our audience. I would like to talk about your professional career in terms of, you know, what is what is the role of a producer? The role of a producer is producing something that people want to see. Well, it's a lot of technicalities behind producing a project. I'm a filmmaker, so I also produce, and I'm an executive producer. Uh, producing is, is basically helping creating um, the project that you may be interested in, in, in pursuing and putting on the screen as a documentarian. And, and that means developing the story, or uh, finding the story, developing the story, um, putting schedules together to produce the film, raising the capital to produce the film. But TV is a little different. And, um, you know, I came from the indie world, so I I was privileged to experience both ends. And um, so there's pros and cons to both. (laughs) But um, producers, you know, producers are normally, um, in my case, filmmakers who are actually putting together the project itself and 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 making sure that it's it's produced for the public to see. Okay. Um do you see yourself or I know Ferguson is a is a pretty uh uh hot topic nowadays. Um are are you looking to produce anything dealing with with Ferguson with Mike Brown? Well of course. I mean um considering my body of work um, it, 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 it will behoove me to do it. I mean, it's, it's my obligation um, to really address this issue that we're facing today in terms of the Michael Brown shooting and, and others that has happened um, this year and last year that contributed to the atmosphere that we're seeing today. And um, in some ways, I, I'm, well, not in some ways, but currently I'm in, I, I am in talks and producing a piece on Ferguson, and um, I'm not just going to really focus on Ferguson itself um, because Ferguson, of course, in the Michael Brown case, is only a microcosm to what's been happening around the country for a long period of time. So I'm thinking about producing something on a broader scale that we all can relate to because there are so many other people who have died even recently um, after the Michael Brown shooting. So I just want to be able to continue to use my platform to address society ills and help initiate the change that we're all looking for. Um, so we want to know about um, about um, new laws, basically with uh, civil, civil rights passed. Do you have any... Uh, um, just the issue, basically, on, on laws that affected civil rights. Are there any new laws that, that kind of, like, touch that we should be aware of as an audience about civil rights? 
Well, no. I mean, we have the same laws on the books, unfortunately. I mean, uh, the only recent laws that I can think of, uh, one that stemmed for the reopening of the Emmett Till case, which is the Emmett Till hate crime bill, um, that was put into existence to, to make sure the finding was in place um, to help um, law enforcement as well as the federal government investigate these unsolved civil rights murder cases. That is still on the books, and there's a push for a second, a second till bill. Um, in terms of hate crime, you have, um, of course, the James Bird and the Matthew Shepard hate crime bill that people should be aware of. But I also have to say, Rodney, um, civil rights in this country is a continuous fight. So we must probably reform a lot of our laws that, that we passed back in the 60s um, that is still, you know, have a lot to do with our issues that we're dealing with today. Um, um, the only, the only, I would have to say, the biggest shock that we have had recently in terms of those laws of our past was, um, of course, the the voting right right law that was um, changed by, of course, the Supreme Court. So now we're not protected as as we were before by the federal government in terms of voting. So and making sure that our vote counts. So um, you know these are issues that I hope that many of us would go back and begin to draw the lines and understand that we still have to continue fighting the same fight today. But not only fight the same fight, but make sure that these laws um, that we understand these laws and how how they affect us even today. And even uh, recently on the uh, the ballot when, on the voting, uh, there was a, uh, a ballot on the ballot of the recent election. They had actually uh, crept in the, the kind of something similar to the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, but they put on the ballot how, you know, about the convictions and the bail that went in also. That kind of went on the ballot where... I think New Jersey has now decided that they're not going to, uh, they could deny, you know, your right to have a bail. So, you know, you could wow. be detained without bail now. You know, so these laws, as you say, you know, uh, kind of going back, you know, and that fugitive slave law was, you know, something <laughs> that was prevalent in the 1850s, you know, and things are trying to revert back. Yeah, it's just unfortunate times that we're living in because, I mean, just think about it. 50 years since the Civil Rights Act of 1964, I mean, we are still fighting for our equal rights under the law. And it's it's just amazing that we hit all these milestones and we celebrated many, many, even Freedom Summer, you know, with, with the – with a lot of our, our brothers and sisters who went down to Mississippi to veg, register black voters. I mean, even with that alone, all those things are really relevant today. And if you really take a look at history and you see the violence that we're seeing in our communities abroad, then you would know a lot of times when this violence actually surfaces, when we see all this violence at one time, it normally happens around election time or during, toward, going towards election. So, you know, those are some of the things that, you know, being a student of history and, and doing the work that I do that I'm I'm able to see that the layman is not normally able to see. And so um, the fight continues. That's all I can say. And as we can see in the atmosphere that we're living in, 
I mean, I know your listeners agree with me. Yes. Now, in terms of your program, The Injustice Files, uh, what is one of your most popular memorable episodes that you that you hmm. you know know it for? You know, my, I, I, I can't say I do. I have a popular episode, but I I can say my most recent had a greater I shouldn't say greater impact, but had a uh, it reached a chord with the community because it was such a subtle subject. And that was um, my show on sundown towns in America. And these were towns where African Americans were not allowed to be in um, after dark or even live within the city limit. And these towns were actually popular during the FDR days in the 1900s. Right after the Great Depression, it began to grow. And um, after I, I read about this, and, and um, I shouldn't say I've read about it because I've never read about it. I heard stories about these towns, but never knew it from the coined phrase of sundown towns. Well, I can remember my father and elders used to tell me about these towns that exist where African Americans were not allowed to be in. But I never knew that these towns were actually structured by um, – um, policies, city policies and law and restrictive covenants that really said um, legally in these particular towns that African Americans or people of color could not go into these towns and live. So when I decided to tackle the subject, I, um, I was reminded of these towns, I have to say, and inspired to do a show on the towns when I was in Mississippi and I was investigating the hanging death of Raynard Johnson that happened in 2000, um, in, in, yeah, in, happened in 2000, I'm sorry. And um, there was a town that existed next to the city, I mean, that, that, that sits next to the city where many said the perpetrators were from who murdered Raynard Johnson. They also told me that it was a town where black people are not allowed to go into. So that piqued my interest in um, looking um, more into this subject, and then I came across a book called Sundown Towns, um, hidden, I think it was Hidden Secrets in America. I, I hate to misrepresent mis, um, the book, but um, Dr. James Lowen, who's a, a renowned sociologist and author, wrote this book, and I reached out to him and asked him about the phenomena of sundown towns, and he told me they still exist. And so I I said, you know, we need to come together because I I wanted to see um, if these towns still exist in Obama's America. That was my mission. (laughs) And unfortunately, I I was able to produce this film. I shouldn't say unfortunately, but unfortunately, I, I mean, unfortunately, these towns do exist is what I'm trying to say. And so it was something that I felt that was under that is that I shouldn't say that was that that is that is under everybody's radar that I think people should be aware of because they're so relevant today. They still exist, and when I say they exist, Rodney, now I know I'm talking a lot. I have to get this out. Ferguson okay. was once a sundown town. So when you look at the demographic of Ferguson, not the people themselves, but the city um, officials 
as well as the police department, which has what is 94% white. You have about 50 police officers, and three of those officers are black. Then you can look at the town officials. The reason why the, there's no diversity in this particular area is because Ferguson once was, was once a sundown town. They did not sell property or allow blacks to rent in the community. But at some point, these people, I mean, a lot of the whites who were in the community moved away and blacks began to move in. So Ferguson itself sits in a center of many sundown towns in two states. So there's a, a whole historical context um, to why we're seeing what's happening in Ferguson take place and why the diversity in Ferguson is not like what people have, would have thought it would be. And so in addition to that, with, you know, the president is on right now, I guess, speaking about immigration. As long as immigration is an issue, as long as violence in the inner communities is an issue uh, where you pin um, these, these ills on African Americans or you label it as African Americans or people of color, um, you know, um, producing this type of violence and carnage, you're going to have white flight. And, of course, of course white flight is going to lead so all these whites, all white counterparts, moving back into these sundown towns, and that's what I'm seeing today. Now, it's interesting that you speak about the sundown towns. Um, you know, I, I think what happens a lot of times that gets overlooked is um, that these laws that come into practice are, uh, you could say, reprisals of, you know, progress of, of black towns. Is there any, any correlation of, let's say, you say Ferguson, in, in sundown towns, what was the the uh, the mobility and and the climate of black towns of these towns that are targeted in sundown towns? Because it's not I don't think it's just uh, that it's the hate element, but I, I look at when blacks are, are progressing, the whites become like in a sense like uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where you know that was a thriving community and it had its own banks and everything and. It had to create the the white um, culture had to produce a climate of hate so it could justify destroying what they had. Is there any relationship to sundown towns that's in relationship to uh, Black Wall Street? Ooh, that's a good question. I haven't never looked at it in that manner in terms of relation to um, sundown towns versus the relationship of Wall Street. I, I would have to say that. Um, you know, of course, we, we've all through our history had our own community. And, and many today, we still have our own communities today. I would have to say many of us have our own communities, and we're segregated in some ways. But when you have a, a sundown town, a sundown town is in existence by law in these communities. Um, you didn't have that so much in, in black communities, of course, you know, you had segregated black communities, but whites could go in and move in if they wanted to. But when you talk yeah. about sundown towns, that cannot happen. They would not allow African Americans or people of color or even Jewish brothers and sisters to live within the community. So, you know, it's a total different beast. And it was only until 1968 where these towns were 
really outlawed, outlawed because of the Housing Rights Acts of 1968. But many of these towns today exist by reputation. So there's still no diversity. I mean, especially in the towns that I went through to while shooting my film uh, on Sundown Towns in America, it was the most awakening experience in my life because many of us, Rodney, unfortunately, we don't know about sundown towns. We don't even know the term sundown town. So, again, this is something that I produced to educate the public about um, an issue that, that should be right in, in the front of our minds because, as we, as, again, as we look at things around us today, we have a lot more, a lot of these sundown towns that still exist, of course, but we have a lot of new ones that are coming, are coming into existence as well. And not only sundown towns, we have sundown suburbs. <laughs> so, you know, if, this is something that, um, as I said, is important for our generation to understand and keep an eye out on because I've spoken with a lot of civil rights activists about sundown towns, and they didn't even know what a sundown town was. So, you know, if our elders don't really know the term, I don't know what these cities are, then can you imagine what this generation will know? <laughs> so, you know, so it's, you know, all my films, I've I just been blessed to be able to produce films that are meaning, meaningful, that contribute to the mo- upward mobility of not just African Americans, but for, um, upward mobility that, uh, for us as a human race. <laughs> Okay, so I think you know, you know, I'm just very informative what we got out with the sundown town. So, you know, I, I, you know, it's stated, you know, sundown towns. I guess we could we could say once with Black Wall Street towns, and I, you know, policies have shifted to move them toward that. Uh, so I guess we could say before we close out our our program tonight, I would like to um, just ask if there's any. Uh, cases have been closed as as a result of you know the injustice files. Closed. Um, no, as of now, um, Rodney, as I said before, there's a lot of cases that are currently still being reviewed. Um, to give you a better understanding, my role in dealing with civil rights murder cases and, and any other case, what I do when the FBI have problems dealing with particular cases. I go into these communities and I plant myself in these communities for a, a, a window of time and convince those who have information on these murders to come forward and hand that information over to me. And in return of them handing this information over to me, I become the liaison between them and, of course, the FBI and convince them to come forward to speak to the FBI to give them the information um, that they have given me as well. So, um, you know, a lot of these cases are still pending. Um, I know that at the beginning of the year, out of the 115 cases, all have been physically closed except mm-hmm. for 10, for 10 cases. So there's 10 cases out there that we're hoping to um, get some justice uh, for. But in addition to that, I must say, that we started off with cases that um, that started in the years of 1940, that took place in the years of 1949 to 1969. So currently, the Till Bill 2 that's um, that's being pushed 
We're open um, 1969 way up until hopefully present day. So um, we have a lot of cases out there, and we all know that 110 cases that the FBI started off with the cold case initiative is only a partial list to cases that that um, took place. I mean, these are the cases that we know of, is what I'm saying. There are many cases we do not know of. So um, do not know. So it's important that, um, you know, we keep all these issues in the forefront. You know, it's important that we understand the civil rights movement still exists today um, and never ended. Like many would think because of Dr. King being assassinated, the civil rights movement ended. No, it's a continuous fight. The civil rights movement was made to never end. So do you think yeah, the, the the program itself for the injustice files is it bringing a sense of of closure to the families to to have a uh, I guess a greater sense that justice is working on their behalf through the program? You know that's a good question because a lot of people ask me all the time. You know, Keith, what is your reward? What is the family's reward? You know, these families are fighting for justice for forty, fifty years. You know, some of them. Um, they, they, they're hoping that they would get the courtroom justice that we all, in a sense, would think of when you mention justice. But I've grown over the years, Rodney, dealing with a lot of these families, and everybody takes on pain differently. And surely these families would love to see courtroom justice in their lifetime, but they also know 30, 40, 50 years later is a lot, is a lot harder to really receiving the justice that they've been longing for. So, you know, my show, um, you know, amazingly, the platform that I have has given a platform for those and for the voiceless and allowed them to have an opportunity to speak out about the deaths of their loved ones. Um, and, of course, not only that, it's a recorded history that they could take away from, you know, take away and have for the rest of their lives. I mean, a lot of these families, they just want – they just want to know what happened to their loved ones. A lot of them don't know exactly what took place. And through these investigations, I'm able to show them, you know, this is what happened. Um, this is why your loved one was murdered. And that has given them more closure than courtroom justice. Yes, and that's excellent. So um, for our listening audience, um, if you like to, you just give us, uh, help promote your show, you just give us, some, if your audience, uh, some information about your website and uh, what time your show has, uh, airs daily and some just general mm-hmm. information so our listening audience can tune in. Well, my, my show, I run, I'm running a lot of specials now, so every season I come out with a special. We try to pick up more. But I'm back in 2015. don't have a specific date yet because I'm like everyone else, um, sitting around trying to see what's happening with Ferguson and so on. But outside of that, um, your audience can follow me on all social media platforms. I'm on Twitter um, under my name, Keith Beauchamp, B-A-U-C-H-A-M-P. I'm on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook. There's also an Injustice Files page on Facebook. Um, you can log on to investigationdiscovery.com and come across my webpage on that. So it's not difficult to locate me. I just want everyone to continue, continually, I mean, to, to continue to support me in this endeavor because when you think about it, there's not too many brothers on television right now that has a show like mine. So, um, in fact, I'm the only one that has a show like mine, to tell you the truth. 
So I need yes. all the support, all the support I could get in the world. I mean, this ride has been a, 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 an amazing venture, adventure for me, and um, I just want to continue to uphold the legacies of those who have given us all free liberties, and I'm able to do it through my work, and I just want to continue this work until my last breath. Well, you keep up the good work, and our listen audience has a, a good uh, uh, background on Mr. Bochamp, and um, I'm pretty sure you've been informative and you've enlightened a lot of our viewers and our listeners into your cause and, uh, you know, your websites and everything. So um, you have a specific website that you have, so you could just uh, – could you give our audience your, your website again well, so that they can actually – well, they can look on investigationdiscovery.com, but to really, if you want to interact with me, I'm on Facebook. That's the best place to catch me or any social media platform. Um, I'm really a social media maniac. So um, we have a lot of edgy discussions, those discussions that we have across the kitchen table we're afraid to talk about in public. We have them yes. on my Facebook platform, and those, and that's my palette, the way I produce my show. So um, I do what mainstream media do not do. <laughs> um, yes. So, um, you know, I just, you know, it's just been a blessing. Um, as I said before, it's been a great ride to be able to contribute, um, to uh, contribute a lot to this generation, and I just want to, I just want to keep it up. I keep, I want to keep going. I just asked your audience to support me. All right. Well, you have our full support, and we thank you for for your time this evening, Mr. Botomp. Mr. Botomp, is it that correct? Oh, you get it right. Or Botomp. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and uh, we look forward to hearing from you and having us as, as a guest on the Just the Freedom uh, show. And, you know, you keep up the good work, and we'll continue to support you. All right. Thank you, Rodney, and thank you guys for having me again. Okay. You have a good night. Mm-hmm.